Chapter Three of the Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marilyn Rakes. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter Three. I lose my companions. I lay for a long while insensible, and that I should have recovered my mind instead of dying in that swoon, I must ever account as the greatest wonder of a life that has not been wanting in the marvelous. I had no sooner sat up than all that had happened and my present situation instantly came to me. My hair was stiff with ice. There was no more feeling in my hands than had they been of stone. My clothes weighed upon me like a suit of armor, so inflexibly hard were they frozen. Yet I got upon my legs, and found that I could stand and walk, and that life flowed warm in my veins, for all that I had been lying motionless for an hour or more, laved by water that would have become ice had it been still. It was intensely dark. The binnacle lamp was extinguished, and the light in the cabin burned too dimly to throw the faintest color upon the hatchway. One thing I quickly noticed, that the gale had broken and blew no more than a fresh breeze. The sea still ran very high, but though every surge continued to hurl its head of snow, and the heavens to resemble ink from contrast with the passage, as it seemed, close under them of these pallid bodies, there was less spite in its wash, less fury in its blow. The multitudinous roaring of the heaving blackness had sobered into a hard and sullen growling, a sound as of thunder among mountains heard in a valley. The brig pitched and rolled heavily. Much of the buoyancy of her earlier dance was gone out of her. Nevertheless, I could not persuade myself that this sluggishness was altogether due to the water she had taken in, it was wonderful, however, that she should be still be afloat. No man could have heard the rending and grating of her side against the ice without supposing that every plank in it was being torn out. Finding that I had the use of my voice, I hollowed as loudly as I could, but no human note responded. Three or four times I shouted, giving some of the people their names, but in vain. Father of mercy, I thought. What has come to pass? Is it possible that all my companions have been washed overboard? Certainly five men at least were living before we fouled the ice, and again I cried out, Is there anyone alive? Looking wildly along the black decks and putting so much force into my voice with the consternation that the thought of me being alone raised in me, that I had liked to have first a blood vessel. My loneliness was more terrible to me than any other condition of my situation. It was dreadful to be standing, nearly dead with cold and utter darkness, upon the flooded decks of a hall, wallowing miserably amid the black hollows and eager, foaming peaks of the laboring sea, convinced that she was slowly filling, and that at any moment she might go down with me. It was dreadful, I say, to be thus placed and to feel that I was in the heart of the rudest, most desolate space of sea in the world, into which the commerce of the earth dispatched but few ships all the year round. But no feature of my lamentable situation so affrighted me 
so worked upon the passions of my mind as my loneliness. Oh, for one companion, even one only, to make me an echo for mine own speech. Nay, God himself, the merciful Father of all, even he seemed not. The blackness lay like a pall upon the deep and upon my soul. Misery and horror were within that shadow, and beyond it nothing that my spirit could look up to. I stood for some moments as one stunned, and then my manhood, trained to some purpose by the usage of the sea, reasserted itself, and maybe I also got some slender comfort from observing that, dull and heavy as was the motion of the brig, there was yet the buoyancy of vitality in her manner of mounting the seas, and that, after all, her case might not be so desperate as was threatened by the way in which she had been torn and precipitated past the iceberg. At moments when she plunged the whiteness of the water, creaming upon the surges on either hand, threw out a phantom light of sufficient power to enable me to see that the forward part of the brig was littered with wreckage, which served to a certain extent as a breakwater by preventing the seas, which washed on to the forecastle from cascading with their former violence aft. Also that the whole length of the main and top masts lay upon the larboard rail and over the side, held in that position by the gear attached to them. This was all that I could distinguish, and of this only the most elusive glimpse was to be had. Feeling as though the very marrow in my bones were frozen, I crawled to the companion, and, pulling open the door, descended. The lamp in the companion burned faintly. There was a clock fixed to a beam over the table. My eyes directly sought it, and found the time twenty minutes after ten. This signified that I had ten or eleven hours of darkness before me. I took down the lamp, trimmed it, and went to the lazard hatch at the end of the cabin. Here were kept the stores for the crew. I lifted the hatch and listened and could hear the water in the hold gurgling and rushing with every lift of the brig's bows, and I could not question from the volume of water which the sound indicated that the vessel was steadily taking it in, but not rapidly. I swallowed half a pennican of the hollands for the sake of the warmth and life of the draught, and entering my cabin and put on thick dry stockings, first chafing my feet till I felt the blood in them, and I then, with a seaman's dispatch, shifted the rest of my apparel, and cannot express how greatly I was comforted by the change. Though the jacket and trousers I put on were still damp with the soaking of previous days, to render myself as waterproof as possible, for it was the wet clothes against the skin that made the cold so cruel, I took from the captain's cabin a stout cloak and threw it over me, enveloping my head, which I had cased in a warm fur cap, with the hood of it, and thus equipped I lighted a small hand-lantern that was used on dark nights for heaving the log, that is, for showing how the sand runs in the glass, and carried it on deck. The lantern made the scene a dead, grave-like black outside, its little circle of illumination. Nevertheless, its rays suffered me to guess at the picture of ruin the decks offered. The mainmast was snapped three or four feet above the deck, and the stump of it showed as jagged and barbed as a wild beast's teeth. But I now noticed that the weight of the hamper, being on the larboard side, balanced the list the vessel took from her shifted ballast, and that she floated on a level keel with her bows fair at the sea. 
whence I concluded that a sort of sea-anchor had been formed ahead of her by the wreckage, and that it held her in that posture. Otherwise she must certainly have fallen into the trough. I moved with extreme caution, casting the lantern light before me, sometimes staring at a sound that resembled a groan, then stopping to steady myself during some particular wild leap of the hull, until, coming abreast of the main hatch, the rays of the lantern struck upon a man's body, which, on my bringing the flame to his face, proved to be Captain Rosy. There was a wound over his right brow, and as if that had not suffered to slay him, the fall of the mast had in some wonderful manner whipped a rope several times round his body, binding his arms and encircling his throat so tightly that no executioner could have gone more artistically to work to pinion and choke a man. Under a mass of rigging in the larboard scuppers lay two bodies, as I could just faintly discern. It was impossible to put the lantern close enough to either one of them to distinguish his face, nor had I the strength, even if I had possessed the weapons, to extricate them, for they lay under a whole body of shrouds, complicated by a mass of other gear, against which leaned a portion of the caboose. I viewed them long enough to satisfy my mind that they were dead, and then with a heart of lead turned away. I crossed to the starboard side, where the deck was comparatively clear, and found the body of a seaman named Abraham Wise near the forehatch. This man had probably been stunned and drowned by the sea that filled the deck after I loosed the staysail. These were all of our people that I could find. The others, I supposed, had been washed by the water or knocked by the falling spars overboard. I returned to the quarter-deck, and sat down in the companionway for the shelter of it and to think. No language that I have command of could put before you the horror that possessed me, as I sat meditating upon my situation and recalling the faces of the dead. The wind was rapidly falling, and with it the sea, but the motion of the brig continued very heavy, a large swell having been set running by the long, fierce gale that was gone, and there being no uproar of tempest in the sky to confound the senses, I could hear a hundred harsh and melancholy groaning and straining sounds rising from the hull, with now and again a mighty blow as from some spar or lump of ice alongside, weighty enough, you would have supposed, to stave the ship. But though the Laughing Mary was not a new vessel, she was one of the stoutest of her kind ever launched, built mainly of oak and put together by an honest artificer. Nevertheless, her continuing to float in her miserably torn and mangled condition was so great a miracle that, spite of my poor shipmates having perished and my own state being as hopeless as the sky was starless, I could not but consider that God's hand was very visible in this business. I will not pretend to remember how I passed the hours till the dawn came. I recollect of frequently stepping below to lift the hatch of the lazaret, to judge by the sound of the quantity of water in the vessel. That she was filling I knew well, yet not leaking so rapidly, but that, had our crew been preserved, we might easily have kept her free, and made shift to rig up jury-masts and haul us as best we could out of these desolate parallels. There was, however, nothing to be done till the day broke. I had noticed the jolly boat bottom up near the starboard gangway, and so far as I could make out by throwing the dull lantern light upon her, she was sound. 
but I could not have launched her without seeing where, what I was doing. And even had I managed this, she stood to be swamped and I to be drowned. And in sober truth, so horrible was the prospect of going adrift in her without preparing for the adventure with oars, sail, mast, provisions, and water, most of which by the lamplight only, were not to be come at amid the hideous muddle of wreckage, that sooner than face it, I was perfectly satisfied to take my chance of the hulk sinking with me and her before the sun rose. End of chapter 3